Hey, everybody, grab your Bibles. First Corinthians, you're gonna, we're going to start in chapter five. We're going to cover two chapters, which is totally insane for a Sunday morning. Nobody should ever try to do this. I'm not even sure why I'm trying to do it. But you grab your Bibles. Since we're going through a book of the Bible, we love to stand in the reading of the word as we do that. So you guys go to First Corinthians chapter five and then stand with us. Uh, and it's important for you to have a Bible in your hand. If you don't have one, there should be one under the chair in front of you. You guys that are joining us at home, be sure to as well uh, grab a Bible so you can see the Word of God for yourself this morning. So I'm going to, uh, in order to get through all of these two chapters without reading the totality, I'm just going to grab some selections so you can just guys jump around and read with me, and we'll have it on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skip to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would literally need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to, to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Chapter six, we'll start in verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be dominated by anything. Food's meant for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, we just with humility come before you with our hands open with this section of the word of God. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd instruct us this morning you would lead us faithfully like the good shepherd that you are. We want to receive your leadership over our lives and we want to receive your heart. Would you help us to know you, know your heart and walk before you? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. So, oh, hang tight. Uh, hey, uh, you, yeah, we'll just watch it. It's good. Dad did a cool thing. Uh, what I was going to say before we got this chance to show is Dad did a cool thing. What he did is he took his daughter uh, and every month took a photo of her in the exact same position for 14 years, from the age of three months until she was 14 years old. And what you saw was a time lapse. It's gotten more than seven and a half million views uh, because I think the reason it's got that many views is because this is how, if you're a parent, this is how you feel like it actually happens. Does it not? You feel like you're like all you had a baby, and then all of a sudden they're about to drive, and it's like, how did we get to this place? In fact, I'm I'm in that moment myself. Um, I've got a son. My oldest son is literally months away from being able to get his learner's permit, and it's crazy. And so even in the last like year and a half, two years, he's like shot up. He he was the one that's leading. He's the good-looking young man on the platform leading. Uh, leading us in worship uh, through the keys. And it, he's just been growing and growing and growing. And all of a sudden, everybody's kind of going like, oh, he's going to pass you. And are you, are you nervous he's going to pass you up? And my answer to that is, heck no. I want my son to be, I want him to be seven feet tall. I want him to wrestle mountain lions, you know, like I want him to like lasso the sun and grow a Paul Bunyan beard. And, you know, like I want all these things. I want him to do like math equations like Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting. Like I want that for him. Right. Like and why? Because he's my son. Right? I just want the best for it. Like all the good and great things that God has for my son. I want him to have it all. I want all of it. In fact, one of the, the things that we, we, we say often in our house and, and we pray is, God, let whatever ceiling we find, let it be the floor for our kids. You've heard that, that phrase before. God, just whatever ceiling we're hitting, we want that to be the floor for our kids to go far beyond us. Why? Because that's what good fathers and mothers feel for their kids. We want more. We want greater. We want better. That's what's in our hearts, every one of us. And so uh, that is the heart that we get to see through Scripture. And herein lies the problem. Because when we often think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or honestly, the idea of religion or even the idea of Christianity, is that so many people see God as the one who is setting rules, the guy who's creating the lists of all the do's and all the don'ts. We tend to think about God and Christianity as a bunch of rules about the things that you can do and the things that you can't do. And even as you look at part of the Old Testament law, if you go back, it's often so misunderstood because uh, what we see is all the things that are permissible or not permissible, rather than seeing the law as the declaration of a transcendent, beautiful, altogether other than holy God. 
The law, the point of the law was to be able to show there is no way of living in this life to be able to become and reach him. He's other than. And in his other than this, he wants us to be with him. And so it becomes so important to remember that God is not a cosmic rule maker. God's not a cosmic rule maker. Listen, God's a father. That's what he is. And he sees his children and he wants what's best. He's a good father who cares more than we could ever care for even our own children. And to whatever degree that you have loved your kids, treasured them, cherished them, wanted peace and hope and wanted joy or comfort or any of those things to whatever degree that you have hungered for that for your own children. Listen, it is a shadow of what it means to have a heavenly father who's over us and what he wants for our lives, not for our lives, for our children's lives and their children and their children. It's a shadow at the fundamental core of what it means to know God, it means to know a father, to be with a father who's good. And in wanting to lead us to what is good and best, because he's created us in his image and he's fashioned us in such a way to experience maximum joy and maximum peace, he wants us to see what it means to have life in him. That's what he... He wants to say, I know as a good father what's maximum and best for you. I know what is best to lead you to the most life. And as a good father, I know the things that will destroy you. I know the things that will hurt you. I know the things that will bring harm to you. And from the heart of a father, he helps lead us towards himself. And he helps lead us into an understanding of what it means to walk with him. And what we have struggled with from the beginning, all of mankind, people, is that we struggle to believe at times that God's design and that his plan and his leadership over our lives as a good father are enough for us and we decide to go our own way. Let me say that again. What we often wrestle to believe is that what God said is good and best is actually good and best, and we often wanna go our own way. And we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form, where we've all chosen to kind of do our own thing, and we've all found it to not go very well. And every, every one of us can point to moments in our lives where we've kind of gone out on our own, and we found it to not go very well. Or even as we've sought to do that, we found that, it hasn't meant fruit and life in our lives. It's just meant a lot of selfishness at times. And of course, this is what we can point to going all the way to the back, to, to, to the beginning. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. What, what was the issue? They believed the lie that going their own way would be better than what the father had for them. That was the, that was the lie, and they believed it. And you could even go back to the picture that scripture gives us of even Satan himself, angel of glory, reflecting the greatness of God and it not being enough for him and saying, no, I want to go my own way. One meant to help lead and point 
to the all beautiful, powerful, sufficient king of the universe. And he said, no, I want that for myself. I'll go my own way. And he it falls and is cast down. And that's the dilemma that every one of us have faced since sin entered into the human equation through Adam and Eve is to come to that point where we believe that the lie, we believe the lie that our own way is better than the way of the Father. That doing our own thing is better. That we can't really trust the Father's heart for us because he's out to keep something from us. When the truth is, just like a good mom or dad here, he wants the greatest and best. That's where he's leading us. And this is, this is it. This is the most fundamental thing. This is the most important question about you and me right now, even here in this moment, is do we believe the lie or do we believe the truth that we have a father who knows the one, the one that we follow, the one that we serve, the one that we worship is aiming for our total best in everything that he says and in everything that he does. That's the defining issue of our lives. And that candidly, is what our, our dear brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth are wrestling with at this moment. As Paul has to take, wants to take as a father, and we talked about his role as a father over this church last week, and if you didn't get to hear the message, you can jump on our website and find it. But he wanted to take this brief moment to address these brothers and sisters who had a deeply broken understanding of sexuality. And it was bringing harm to themselves. They had misunderstood the father's heart and they turned away from him. They turned toward their own way. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to answer three simple questions that I think that the scripture we're going to open up and reveal to us. And we'll go through those three questions and then we'll, we'll be finished this morning. Here are the questions. Number one, why in particular is Paul addressing this issue of sexuality in such a pronounced way, in such a direct way? Number two, what does the word of God reveal about God's heart concerning this issue? What does this letter, what does Paul's words and the Holy Spirit's words reveal about God's heart concerning the issue of sexuality? And then finally, how do followers of Jesus respond to sexuality when we see that it's broken in the world? Or how do we respond when we find broken sexuality in us or among us? Those are the core questions that Paul wants to kind of drill down to. That's what we're going to take aim at here this morning. And our hope is that from the answers to these questions, we get to be carriers of hope and carriers of life. Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Fundamentally is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and to be able to carry life wherever we go. So let's answer these questions uh, one by one. Number one, why is Paul addressing this in such a way? Meaning, there's a whole lot of issues in the church. In fact, as we were reading the text, it wasn't just sexuality that was a broken thing within the church, but he names a number of things. But why was there confusion and problems over this issue of human sexuality in the church? And so let me just unpack very briefly the world that they're living in, right? Corinth 
is a major port city. It is a major trade city that if you took, you can literally see there's a road from Athens that goes through Corinth to the west of Greece. So it becomes this radical place of travel and uh, transience and trade, and there people are coming in and out of uh, this city all the time. And one of its central industries is the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which employs a thousand or more prostitutes as a part of its occultic worship to this goddess. And so what they would do is they would throw massive banquets uh, around uh, this temple and around these prostitutes. And friends would come and literally be assigned pro- prostitutes uh, whenever they came to the city. And so this promiscuity over this city flows from this trade and it begins to open this door to all manner of sexual activity, including in all of the things that are mentioned here in the scripture, fornication, which is sex with anyone that is outside of your marriage, open marriages, adultery, homosexuality, bisexuality, and so on and so forth. And so the, the way this is part of the fabric of the city, the very way of life in which the city of Corinth is operating. And much like the world that we find ourselves living in, it's just woven into the fabric of the culture. And the followers of Jesus were just finding themselves caught up in basically just how everyone else is living. They're from this city. They're around the city. Paul came, preached the gospel. They responded to the gospel. He was there for, again, we told you a couple of messages ago, he was there for 18 months, and then he was moving on. The church is established. But they have been, there are patterns and cultures they've been a part of. And it has continued to seep itself into the church. And so Paul, as a father, wants to take a moment to address this broken issue of sexuality that is over the church. And what he starts with is he points out the report that he gets in chapter 5. And it says, here's what's being reported. is that there is sexual immorality among you. And it's of a kind that even the pagans don't really run in. And what they had is there was a man that had said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then he had gone into a sexual relationship with his stepmother. It says, for a man has his father's wife. And here's what he says, and you're arrogant. So basically what he's saying is that the man who had purported to be a follower of Jesus was actually celebrating like a badge, wearing it like a badge, what he, had, what he was doing. Uh, in, in doing this. And of course, again, even the pagans feel like this is really radically over the line. And here's the question that Paul asks. Are you not rather to mourn? That's what he's asking is, here's what's happening in your world. Why isn't your heart broken and sad over this? Here's the question they're asking. And the culture's asking, which is, why would anybody's heart be broken over this? This is just what we do. This is just the world we live in. This is just how life works. They don't even understand. In fact, they may... Paul helps kind of flesh out the argument in chapter six because he's going to quote a very well-known Greek saying, and you can follow with me in chapter six, verse 12. You'll see it in quotes in your Bible because here's, here's the conventional Greek thought. All things are lawful for me. But Paul makes the retort that not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me. But I'm not, I'll not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. That's the conventional thought. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here's what Paul's doing. Let me just break this down. He's addressing this prevailing Greek philosophy of their day. This is the philosophy that the soul and the body are totally separate. They're completely different entities. There's no relation from the body and from the soul. And so what the Greek people would say is because there's no relation between the soul and the body, with the body, we can do whatever we want. All things are permissible for me. All things, there's nothing holding me back. And what he says here, as Paul quotes this, is food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. This is the conventional thought. What Paul's trying to get at is the, the idea was if I'm hungry and I feel hungry, I eat because I feel hungry. That's what the body's telling me to do. And he relates it to the act of sexuality. If I feel like having sex, then I have sex because that's what my body feels like doing. This was the idea that there's not this idea that somehow sex is intertwined with the soul in any way. That was anathema to the Greek philosophers. They're just saying, if you feel an urge or a desire, do it. This is what you should do because there's no real impact on the soul. It's just your body. And Paul wants to say, church, you couldn't be further from the truth. Your soul and body all together are deeply meaningful to the Lord. You want to know why? Because you've been crafted in the image of God. There is no just body and no just soul. He makes the argument. You can say all things are permissible, but listen, it's not all beneficial. You can make the argument, all things are permissible, but do you really want to be dominated by something? This is the culture that's putting this idea forward. That listen, if I feel like having sex, I have sex. Two consenting adults, it's not illegal. It's all permissible. It's all acceptable by our culture, in our society, by our government, by our entertainers, by our musicians, by our politicians and our religion. Do whatever we feel like. You understand? It feels a little bit like the 21st century, if you're asking me. The mentality we see it everywhere in our culture. Why can't we just do what everyone else is doing? That's the question. And he says, hear me. Cause just because the world around us is doing this and just because the entertainers and the politicians are okay with it and just because the modern philosophy of the day actually exalts it, listen, none of that upholds the intent and the design of the one who created sex from the beginning. Not any of it. Just because it's popular in culture doesn't mean that it's actually pointing to the uniqueness of the design, which leads us to that second question that we meant to ask. Well, what does God actually think about this issue of sexuality? What does the word actually have to say to us about it? We'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. It says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
He said, he asked this question, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So here's what the Father is saying to us. You are so, 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 so much more than your base desires. That every one of us have desires in our nature. In fact, some of the desires that we carry as humans are beautiful because they're given to us by those, because we're those that bear the image of Jesus. We got desires and things in us that are powerful and beautiful because they're put in us by the one who created us and fashioned us in his image. But the father knows this one lingering truth, that sin is always crouching around, looking for an opportunity to take our desires and to twist them to bring destruction, to, to betray us, so that deep down, we know, listen, not, you know this, we've all been there. Not every desire we have is right and good, right? right? The moment where someone cuts you off on I-65, that desire to ram them with your vehicle, that's not good. We know not everything that comes up inside of us is right and good. And Paul's just trying to say, there's something here with this issue that's bringing death to you. And so what he wants to say is, listen, sex never has and never will be about a primal urge in your body that has no bearing on your soul. They're intertwined because your body is for the Lord. You've been joined with him. Don't you know there's no separation? When, when Paul actually says here, when he's talking about the body, He's actually, he's talking about the soul, what it means to be united with him. He's not just talking about our physicalness. He's actually saying when the two connect, he's, he's, not, he's saying it's more than just two bodies coming together. There's a soul factor that's taking place. And so when you call on the name of Jesus, what it says is you become enmeshed with him, one with him. What Jesus says is, I'll make my home inside of you. I come with you. And we're inextricably linked together. I love that he says in there in verse 16, or uh, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And he points, look at, and back in verse 16, he says, for as it's written, the two will become one flesh. So here's where the father lands on this issue of sex is he's gonna point us back to the very beginning of his good heart in creating it, creating sex from the get-go. And what does he say? All the way back in Genesis chapter two, he says, I created this. God's the originator of sex. It comes from him. And so here's what he says. One man and one woman are gonna come together and this picture of this union of this vulnerability, of this intimacy, of this delight, of this enjoyment, this act of intimacy, literally in Genesis chapter 2, 25 says, 
They were naked and had no shame, fully vulnerable with each other. This act of this union forever will show you my covenant that was with you that is unbreakable. That the point of it from the beginning was to show us this unique uh, knowing of each other. And he's saying that it's more than just an act of the body or just some primal base desire. It's a picture of vulnerable, of vulnerability, of being fully accepted, of being fully received, of being fully treasured in this union. And all of this is pointing to this union we have with God through Christ. This is the enmeshing that's taking place. And we'll see throughout the word of God, going back to the Old Testament, that we get this picture that God is the bridegroom and his people as the bride. And often in the Old Testament, he refers to Israel as his bride. And when they turn their hearts away from him, it's literally couched as a picture of adultery. That's the picture that we'll see in the Old Testament when the, when the Israelites turn their hearts from the Lord. The father's grieved because it's this act that's outside of this covenant between one man and one woman together. In the New Testament, we have this incredible picture where it says Christ is the bridegroom. He's coming again for his bride, his people. And so God created this union between one man and one woman as a model. It's a signpost of the power and delight of knowing God perfectly forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll get there in several weeks, but in verse 12, Paul makes this statement. He says, he says, for now we see things in a mirror dimly. And mirrors were like silver plates. You couldn't see like the mirrors of today. And he says, but then face to face, that there's coming a day, now I know in part, but there's coming a day when every one of us who are in Christ will stand before Jesus. And here's what it says. You will be fully known as you shall fully know. Meaning there's coming a moment where we come together, the bride, his people, with the bridegroom, and we're undone. We have these beautiful pictures and shadows of who God is and God's revealing himself. And the more we'll open ourselves, he'll reveal who he is. But there's coming a day where we'll see him and we will be one perfectly. We only know now in part, but we're meant to fully know. And that picture of fully knowing is this shadow that we get in this issue of one man and one woman coming together. That's the point of it. It always was the point of it. It always has been. And so I want you to hear this. The Christian view of sex is not old-fashioned or outdated. Listen, it wasn't outdated 2,000 years ago any more than it is today. They had the same issues that we're facing today. Paul wasn't trying to press toward a prudish view of sex because God doesn't have a prudish view of sex. He's the designer of it to help us see what it means to have intimacy in a covenant with a king. What Paul's doing is pressing back to the design. That design has, by the way, outlasted every culture and every time. And listen, just like a good father, he isn't trying to create frigid, hard rules to take your fun away from you. 
as often the, the, I think the thought process is, is that anyone that would might be sitting in this room that hasn't joined themselves to the heart of Jesus might be hearing what I'm saying and go, it just feels like God's trying to restrict or take away from me. When in fact, it's actually a father who's saying, I know actually the exact design I have for this gift that I've given to you. And if you'll trust me in it, it'll lead you towards life. But if you allow the lie to come in and tear it apart, it'll bring destruction to you. And that's what Paul's wrestling with in this church. That, I've, that God's saying, I've, I've created this physical and spiritual and emotional union with your covenantal spouse for you to be able to envision a day when you'll see me and to be fully known and fully accepted. That's where I'm aiming. That's what the point of this is. Which leads us to our final question and we'll begin to wrap it up. What do we do as followers of Jesus? And how do we respond to this issue of sexuality when it feels so really broken everywhere around us? And when we ourselves have struggled or have had issues with broken sexuality in, our, in and of ourselves? Because that's the truth. I don't know anyone, I've known very few people that haven't been challenged or hurt or wounded through this issue of sexuality in their lives or found themselves struggling or wrestling in some way. And so the, I think Paul wants to try to answer that question. The Holy Spirit wants to answer that question for us. And so first, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna answer the question, how do we, how do we function in this world that would look at sex as um, everybody's doing it and this is the normal thing to do and anyone that thinks that you should shouldn't be having sex except for only with your spouse. That anyone thinking that way is crazy or old-fashioned or even, and candidly, nowadays when you start to talk about uh, truth or beliefs, it's often said as, as uh, perpetrating violence against those who don't believe that way. And so how do we handle this issue Here's what I love about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but he says this, but I'm not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In verse 12, he says, for, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom, is it not that those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside. So here's what, he, here's what he wants to say. Shaming people for not holding biblical sexual morality when they don't know Jesus is Lord and have not committed their lives to following him, that's not the gospel. Hear this. Shaming people who don't know Jesus and are outside of the kingdom and are not a part of the family of God, that's not in God's heart. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. We have two moments in scripture where Jesus encounters two different women who have significant sexual immorality in their lives. I thank God that he showed us this picture. He encounters one woman at the well and he encounters a woman who's been caught in adultery. And both of these women does Jesus accost them and spew anger and venom and judgment at them for their sin? 
Is that how he treats them? No. What does he do? He invites them into a conversation. He looks past sexual sin and he looks deep into their soul. And he has that conversation with that woman at the well. And he says, listen, I've got water that will quench the thirst that you have for other things. Because he's saying, listen, you've been looking for the water of life in love and in romance and in sexuality. And unless you know me as your true love, you'll never be filled. And he just so lovingly and kindly says, I understand what you're going for. I get it. I want you to know I want that. I want your heart. Unless you come to me and have this, you're just going to keep seeking and searching. You've had five husbands, or five men you've been with, and the guy that you're living with now, he's not even, he's, he's not, you're not even married to him. I understand and know I'm not here to fix your uh, uh, behavior. I want to go right to the heart. I want you to know me. I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. So what he does, the woman that's thrown down at his feet, who's been caught literally in the act of adultery, is he's spewing venom and telling her how dare she uh, come against the rule of God? No. He asks for anyone that has never sinned before to cast the first stone. And then he looks at her and he says, hey, I want you to know, I don't stand in judgment over you. I want you to come into my family. This is what I want. Come, you don't have to live a life this way anymore. You can have me. You get me. This is what he does. And so for the church, hear this. There are so many ways in which the church in public ways have shamed those who don't uphold a biblical value for the reality of sexuality. And what Paul's saying is that's not the way forward for the church is to shame people. What do we do? We're going to invite them in. We invite them in. We hurt. We pray. We have compassion. And I want you to hear this. For those that you have a God-ordained audience with who are dealing with, don't know Jesus and are, are walking through their own unique issues in sexuality, what we want to do is simply introduce them to the one who can quench the thirst of their souls. That's our aim. That's where we're going. We want to introduce people to Jesus. Our aim is not to look at the homosexual and try to make them heterosexual. You know why? Because heterosexuality does not save you. Jesus saves. Jesus, King of the universe, comes and changes hearts. We don't come at the one who's wrestling with things and force them to not wrestle with things. We introduce them to the King. We share our story of how he saved us, of how he cleaned us, of how he's healed us and made us whole. That's what we do. And finally, what do we do about those in the church that struggle with sexuality? Because let's just be honest, it's kind of pervasive. 
Right? People in the church all the time find themselves struggling with areas of broken sexuality, pornography, and open marriages, homosexuality, bisexuality. We see it all. And here's what Paul says, and he's just honest, but he leads to life because he says, listen, I know you, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you know, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral or idolaters or nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers are gonna inherit the kingdom of God. But hear this, look, here's the hope, church. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. Because this is what... The Father says to anyone who finds themselves struggling with sexuality in their lives, with brokenness, with temptation or greed or lust or addictions. I mean, he kind of lists a whole list there. He says, here, I mean, we, yes, certainly sexual immorality, there's so many ways we struggle with sin. And Paul gives the whole list and says, yeah, anyone who wants to go on in these ways, absolutely. There will be judgment at some point, but listen to me, for you that have called on the name of Jesus, that's not who you are anymore. God doesn't look on his people and say, you're this and you're that and you're that. That's not, he doesn't do labels. What he says is you were those things, but listen, who are you now? You're a son or daughter of the most high God. You've been washed, son. You've been sanctified, daughter. You've been raised up. You've been justified. You've been made whole and clean. So come back to the Father and let him wash you fresh again. Let him give you fresh vision for life. Let him come and heal wounds and hurts and places in which you've been uh, wounded or uh, taken advantage of. This is what he says. The Father doesn't shame. He says, that's not who you are anymore. You've been changed. You're a new creation. If you're in Christ this morning, you found yourself wrestling with areas of sexuality that are broken, hear this, come to the Father and get refreshed in his love. Come to the Father and get washed and get cleaned and made whole. Come to his heart. You guys stand with me. Father, we just want to come right now asking God, would you grant to us a spirit of affection for you, hunger for you, where we listen to your heart, what you would say over to, to us. What would you say about us, God? Would you call us back up? Would you encourage and mold us? For those of us that have struggled in some ways, Lord, would you bring wholeness and healing? For those of us that love someone that's really struggling right now, God, would you grant life right now? Would you give us words of wisdom and love and mercy and goodness? Would you help us to be people who open our arms to hug and to receive in the same way that, Lord, you have hugged and received us? Maybe we trust you and your plan for this in our lives, God. But more than anything, God, I ask that we would hear your voice say, washed and sanctified and made whole and given new life. Would you call us up and out of life of sin and into a life of joy and peace with you? And so Lord, even just now, any area of brokenness in the area of sexuality, just give it to him. Just be honest with him right now. I'm not going to ask you, raise your hand or come forward. I'm just saying right where you're at with the Lord. Would you just say, hey, Lord, here's where I'm at and I'm giving this to you. I'm offering it to you because you've washed me. You've made me whole. You have sanctified me. You've totally justified me. You've given me a new life and a new name and a new identity. And I stand again 
in your perfect love over me. I stand again in your perfect definition of my life. I receive your holiness and I receive your forgiveness and I receive your washing and I receive your goodness. You've made me whole and I stand confident as a son or a daughter in Christ. Father, would you align our lives with you? Would you let us say yes to what you say yes to, no to what you say no to, and trust you with our lives? That's what we're asking God. In the name of Jesus, let's worship church.